Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, welcome to the Politics VIP lane that is Oh God, What Now? (laughs) Where you'll be getting special access to exciting opportunities and you definitely won't get a hand on the shoulder from the House of Lords Commissioner for Standards years down the line. I'm Andrew Harrison. On today's show... Keir Starmer says Labour will abolish the Lords as part of a massive overhaul of the Constitution, but he's not interested in proportional representation. Why does he want to burn his political capital, reforming one institution that, while not exactly democratic, does at least hold the government to some sort of account, but not fixing the part that is really undemocratic? Plus, it's beginning to feel a lot like someone's ruined Christmas. The press and the government are eager to blame Mick Lynch, the RMT, nurses and ambulance workers for our winter of strikes. Do the public agree? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, the Oxford word of the year means behaviour which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly or greedy. Congratulations to the Conservative Party. It's actually goblin mode. So stay tuned as we emerge from our caves to terrorise the paladins and barbarians of Westminster politics. In the meanwhile, let's meet the panel. First up, it's Chief Executive of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Andrew. So there is tragic, tragic news. Matt Hancock is standing down as an MP. He's not going to run. How will we live? Well, uh, I think he'll live all right because uh, he'll he'll be on his celebrity circuit. But it was hilarious that he did this big announcement. Oh, I'm not going to restand, even though the whips offered to give it me back. I think there are other more brilliant ways I can connect with people rather than being an MP. And then Kate Maltby and Jane Merrick at the Eye hours later break the real story which was that his uh, local conservative association were absolutely not going to reselect him to be their mp i mean like how can they miss the opportunity to be handed out leaflets of him covered in kind of kangaroo audio <laughs> as well as here is your guy it just seems it's just a missed opportunity i would say um, also this week rishi sunak's 1.4 billion pound brexit opportunities fund to encourage UK investment turns out to be uh, money just rebadged from other uh, from other funds. The FT no. uh, worked this out. So you know what? What other schemes have their cash next to uh, as the the sticking plaster for Brexit continues to <laughs> fall off the knee of Britain? It's not so much that their cash has been nicked, but more that it's been given a horrible new Brexit coat of paint. Um, so a, a freedom of information request from the FT shows that funds that have been awarded by things like a 2020 fund to support the production of electric cars or another to support offshore wind has been counted towards what last year Sunak said was 1.4 billion of new money to help drive economic activity post-Brexit. It's just more smoke and mirrors from this Conservative government. And meanwhile, We know that Brexit has just increased costs for businesses. They've lost billions in investment for the UK, for the areas that need it most. You know, famously, the regional development funds that the EU uh, used to give us that we have not replaced. So this is just more of the same from this uh, gaslighting government. Also with us, it's escaped Labour spin doctor and Times Radio host Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. Hello, hello. Well, I want to ask you about Moan Alone. Uh, the Conservative peer Michelle Moan is taking a leave of absence from the House of Lords after being accused of pocketing £29 million for a PPE deal uh, that she lobbied the government for via various structured companies. Rishi Sunak is absolutely shocked. Moan has denied uh, the, the accusations. This is not how I thought the PPE scandal would finally, finally break. Why do you think this one in particular is cutting through? I think there's a number of reasons. I think it's partly because it's her, uh, a prominent female figure. Um, You know, I think there's a bit of snobbery around her as well. Look, I'm no fan of the woman, but I think there is a bit of snobbery around her. She's sort of working class background in Glasgow. She's become a a, a baroness. She's quite into her sort of self-promotion. So I think there's been a lot of people who've kind of had their eye on her for a while. And then, of course, this terrible scandal has has come along. Um, and I think it's so shocking because of the amount of money. 
it was revealed that she had lost the Tory whip. But then Rishi Sunak's spokesperson said she'd lost the whip not because Rishi Sunak had taken away the whip, but that is just procedural because she's taken a leave of absence from the House of Lords. And it was almost like his press officer went to great lengths to sort of say this wasn't done at the behest of the Tory party. And I think what this really shows is just a real political inexperience and a real political naivety, or maybe I'm being too generous, or it shows that Rishi Sunak is not the guy who stood in front of the steps of Downing Street and said, I'm going to lead a different kind of government. I'm going to put integrity um, and accountability at the heart of things. Maybe he is just happy to turn a blind eye to this. But this story is an absolute stinker. When you've got Nadim Zahawi saying like, nurses should just suck it up and, and have low pay to not help, you know, to, to sort of not to pander to Putin, but it's okay for us to turn a blind eye to this. I mean, it stinks. And, and the fact that the Tories have not, sort of actively distance themselves from this woman really shows that it kind of feels like some of the Boris Johnson scandals all over again. And we got through all that with that single bra joke. Completing <laughs> our team is Hannah Fern, columnist at The Independent. Hi, Hannah. Hello. So in Tory rebel news, again, uh, the government scrapped its housing targets. They are now only advisory and can be limited if they uh, change the character of an area. I thought all housing changed the character of an area. It's sort of kind of the point, isn't it? Uh, Gove says the climb down actually makes the government stronger. How that works, I don't know, unless it's a kind of Darth Vader, Obi-Wan Kenobi type of thing. Um, have, have the Conservatives just handed yet more power to the NIMBY wing? Yes, they have. They also really sort of kowtowed to that um, particular and pro increasingly small group of MPs, actually, who really uh, um, worry about housing. I'm not sure how useful this is on the doorstep. You know, they, I mean, they know they're in trouble at the next election. Let's not pretend that they, they don't understand their situation. But when they're trying to campaign, at least... How useful is it to be anti-housing, anti-development at the moment? Not really. Most um, traditional Tory uh, voters are now have children who yeah. simply cannot access housing in any affordable way. Um, it's interesting that this fell at the same time as we, we found out today that um, that the government is thirty-two thousand short of its affordable housing target. So this it feels like a complete own goal. Um, and we've also got a situation where City AM had an interesting story this week. Um, the the paper of the financial financial uh, sector, basically reporting that landlords are fleeing the market in increasing numbers because of changes to rules on capital gains uh, allowances. So landlords that were sort of hobbyists, not really very serious about it, are, are fleeing. That's putting loads of properties that were for private rent on the market. Great if you're a first-time buyer that does happen to have a deposit, an increasingly small number. But there's nowhere for people to rent, even if they're in, you know, in, in private rent now. They all properties are leaving the market, so uh, it's it's a disaster. So vote Tory and ensure your kids never leave home and <laughs> yeah. live in your house, eating your stuff forever. It's a tough sell that one. It's isn't a very it? tough sell. <laughs> Before we start, a reminder that our Christmas live show in London on Monday is completely sold out. But lucky Patreon backers can watch it on Zoom for free. Just search Patreon, oh god what now podcast, sign up and you can register for the festive Zoom with me, Roz, Alex and Dorian live at 21 Soho. And if you're thinking of making your family's Christmas with oh god what now gifts from our store at podmarket.co.uk, you'd better be Quick, last orders for 24-hour regular postage and 48-hour tracked are this Friday, 9th of December. But you can still order 24-hour tracked as late as Sunday the 11th if you really want to chance it. So go to podmarket.co.uk now and get an oh god what mess tea towel for your nan or a Christmassy woke snowflake mug for, well, your nan too because she might also be a woke snowflake. Order now. Our elves are standing by. Now, tears for peers. <laughs> Labour will look at replacing the indefensible Lords with an elected chamber if it wins the next general election. Gordon Brown's 40-point plan will also entail a mass transfer of power from Westminster to local areas and new rules to end the undue influence of wealth and foreign money and prevent MPs part-timing on the job. Conspicuously absent from the plans are doing anything about the first-past-the-post electoral system, which regularly hands governments unassailable majorities, despite none of them having cleared even 45% of the vote since 1970. So, Naomi, this is very much your wheelhouse. Is Labour squandering its political capital trying to fix the least broke bit of our constitution? 
<laughs> Can I just say what a pleasure it is to be invited to actually talk about electoral reform without having to make that my answer to any and every question. <laughs> it's your you Christmas. And, and not having to put money in Dorian's swear jar. Um, <laughs> uh, look, it is, I mean, look, it's great that Labour is finally talking about power about who has power, who should have it, how do we affect change. And there is a lot to commend in the report. And there is a lot of report. In true Gordon Brown fashion, it is 155 <laughs> pages long. But of course, there is this glaring omission that is notable by its absence in such a long document. And I think to talk about uh, things like House of Lords reform uh, without talking about really affecting democratic change by changing the voting system in the commons is a bit like fixing the roof while the foundations rot. Um, the report uh, in its 155 pages doesn't mention um, electoral reform for Westminster elections. And actually, uh, the word electoral system only appears once. Um, and the report suggests that it's because unlike other proposed measures, electoral reform would take more than a single term to deliver. Now, there's a lot to unpack with all of that. Um, uh, I don't think it would have to span more than one electoral cycle. I think that's actually nonsense. Uh, a government that wants to deliver it can do it within a single term. And we know this. How do we know this? Because that is precisely what a Labour government in, in Wales is doing in its current term. You've got to think about how likely a second term is even necessarily going to be under a first-past-the-post system when you are inheriting such a dire situation, other crises as well, climate crises uh, and potentially um, other geopolitical factors still rumbling on. So um, I think it's very disappointing that there is that omission. But that is not to say that the report is entirely without merit. Of course it isn't. There are really important proposals in it. It makes much of the fact that the UK is one of the most centralised of all the wealthy nations in the world, that that is having a profoundly negative effect on everything from economic inequality to faith and trust in the political system. Um, and, and just as trickle-down economics has failed, trickle-down democracy has failed. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think it is a comprehensive piece of work. I think there's much to commend in it, but it is surely very disappointing given the sheer amount of support across the Labour Party, across right, left and centre, unions, CLPs up and down the country, all now backing a change to the voting system for it not to be in that is, of course, disappointing. I hate saying big beasts. It's one of those phrases that really gets on my nerves. But lots of them, like Peter Mandelson and David Blunkett, are very much against the proposals on the Lords. Is it just because Mandy hates Gordon Brown? So. Use their titles correctly. It is Lord Mandelson and Lord Blunkett. Surely, surely there's no conflict there, none whatsoever. Um, you know, these guys are pulling the strings um, when they got rid of hereditary peers and and things like that. So, um, uh, look, I think they're entitled to their opinion. I don't think you can expect uh, turkeys to vote for Christmas necessarily. Though not entirely, there are plenty of laws that I know that would gladly uh, vote to abolish themselves. Um, I, I, I think the majority of people across Labour are very happy to see that corrupt chamber that has been stuffed full of people who have made major donations to the Conservative Party and other parties as well. Um, be a thing of the past. Uh, you are never, you are never going to get them um, in with that kind of talk. No, I'm not. Aisha. <laughs> Aisha, full disclosure, you were uh, one of the group who worked with Gordon Brown for Labour on this commission. Uh, there were union leaders, metro mayors, lawyers in the room. Without breaking the omerta, what can you tell us? How much brief, how much brief and leeway did you get? Are you allowed to tell us anything at all? Well, obviously, I can't take you completely behind the curtain, um, mm. but it was like a really brilliant thing to be part of, and it was like a like two years of work and discussions. Obviously, started in um, lockdown and. What I will say is that there is the kind of the wish list of what people would like to see in a commission. And then when you get commissioned by a political party, there is obviously the kind of real politic about what is going to be within scope. And I mean, this has obviously had a, a, a lot of oversight from Keir Starmer's team. They've taken a really, really close interest in it. And there was a lot to pack in. And of course, 
you know, it being Gordon Brown and I worked for Gordon Brown. I love Gordon Brown. I'm in touch with Gordon Brown a lot. Very, very deep thinking man. It was never going to be a 10 point plan. We managed to cut it down to a pithy 40 point plan. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? I'll tell you what is quite nice is in a world where nobody sort of wants to believe in experts anymore or, or put their shoulder to the wheel. You know, it's quite refreshing to actually, you know, have been engaged in a process with people who really, really think deeply about things who are, you know, involved in a political party as opposed to things just being kind of back slogans so I think basically if I'm really really honest there was a lot of things that I think a lot of people might have wanted to sort of put in here but then there was also the reality of what the leadership was going to be prepared to work there's no point putting stuff in a commission report for a political party when you know that the the leadership is is absolutely not signed off on on that issue and I know this will not uh, brighten Naomi's day. And there is growing support for proportional representation, but that is not where the leadership is. It's not where the shadow cabinet is. It's definitely not where Keir Starmer is. And it's not where the people who really influence Keir and the kind of key people who are shaping this party under Keir Starmer are. So the fact that Gordon Brown is the face of it is a huge message to Scotland, isn't it? And there's a lot of stuff in here about how, uh, you know, uh, let Scotland negotiate with foreign nations in certain cases, almost mirroring regional devolution with what's happened with Scotland itself. Do you think this is enough to get Scotland interested in Labour again? So I think the first thing is this was not just a report to, you know, kind of deal with Scotland because... The whole point of this report was it's as much um, a report for people in Scotland as it is for Andy Burnham, who had huge frustrations during the the COVID crisis when when we saw how devolution doesn't always work and how Westminster puts impositions on other parts of the the nations and regions without really thinking about it. It was meant to be a a coherent UK-wide report. And also, I think, attempting to put some thinking behind the the vacuous slogan levelling up, which we hear um, uh, a lot about. The stuff in Scotland is not sort of to say, look, if you really, really support independence, this report is not going to change your mind. But what I've certainly found talking to a lot of people in Scotland, there's a lot of people, they're not happy with the status quo. They don't want to go full independence because they're, they're nervous about that. They look and see what's happened with Brexit, but they don't want the status quo either. And this does put some more flesh on the bones on, on, on some more powers. And one of the things that people really make a mistake of, particularly down here in London, we sort of think that Scotland is this kind of political utopia where everyone's really, really happy with how the SNP is governing Scotland. And yes, the SNP does do well, but a lot of people in Scotland feel very remote from power in Scotland. You go up to like the Western Isles or Orkney and Shetland, they feel really remote from Holyrood. And there's also other really important things, like one of the big things that we've all been talking about is growth in our kind of parlour productivity Well, the fact that we don't have more regional autonomy in things like an economic strategy, business strategy, how we use our colleges, how we use our universities, how we do partnerships since the government got rid of the regional development agencies, all of that stuff has really fallen by the wayside. So there's quite a lot of interesting thinking around that as as well. And remember, this is a consultation document. It's the beginning of, of a conversation. It will now be for the shadow cabinet and, of course, most importantly, the person writing the manifesto to to now proceed and, and, and see what they want to put in the final document. Hannah, is, is changing the Lords to a, like a Senate or a, a kind of differently elected House kind of relatively uh, free hit for Starmer, like a kind of a smart move in that you know, the more power he gives away to regional representation, the more he kind of, you know, pushes responsibility for big decisions elsewhere. It's no longer it's no longer Labour's problem, it's everybody's problem. Oh, maybe. I mean, I think I found this report fascinating. I do think that localisation is a very good thing. So personally, I think this is this is kind of really welcome. It's exciting to see Labour in this territory. But actually, I'm not sure how much of a win it is electorally. Um, I don't think they're, they really give a monkey's really about the Lords, uh, how it sits. I think they do care very much about cronyism, wherever that stands. And around kind of devolution... Uh, you know, they don't love local government at the moment. They don't love council taxes going up. Um, so this is, some of it is quite a tough sell. I mean, it's important to remember that the last time um, we were talking about devolution with Labour, people turned down the North East Regional Assembly. Mm. So 
while I think this is really exciting on a personal level, I'm not sure how much return uh, Labour are going to get from it. But there is stuff in there about, you know, the influence of wealth and foreign money part time. The thing that the things that really wind people up because they can identify it. MPs with multiple jobs who don't seem to do anything useful in the chamber. Uh, you know, the stinking flood of money, the corruption that's gone on. That stuff that, that there is stuff in there, isn't there? In yes, the report and I think that? this is the stuff that I think that Starmer should really be majoring on out there. Mm. Second jobs for MPs, part-time jobs for your mates. We all know that the existing rules on on lobbying are broken all the time. Yeah. Uh, there's a kind of better, clearer set of rules and Labour basically stand, stand up and stand for this. Um, the fact that Starmer personally has spoken about his decision to turn down offers of second jobs means that this is actually really great kind of personal positioning for him. So this, this element, I think, is much more in it. Uh, in terms of you know just getting out there and, and being the alternative to the current corrupt setup. Yeah, Aisha, um, not to be too Brenda from Bristol about it, but if we were going to be electing the Lords, that would then be staggered between a general elections. We're almost into a kind of American midterm scenario, unless you say the Lord sits for eight years or ten years, whatever, which creates its own own problems. Do people have the appetite for you know continual voting for? You know, even if it's only for, I think the idea is 200 elected figures in the new chamber. Well, look, I mean, how all the detail of this would be worked out is now for the uh, kind of Labour policy team to to think about. And there are sort of different views on how you could bring that chamber together. I mean, I suppose just to sort of push back a bit on some of the narrative, which is like, oh, you know, why is everything being focused on the Lords? Well, the reason it's been focused on the Lords is is that that is something that got leaked and the media got very excited about the House of Lords, as it always does. One of the reasons our country is in such a mess is because nobody has done any critical long-term thinking about lots of things which are quite boring and they don't excite everybody down the mythical dog and duck. And it doesn't mean that that sort of work shouldn't happen the stuff about the Lords as well, certainly with some of the focus group stuff that we've had a look at, as you say, Andrew, because of so many scandals that have hit the Lords, people don't think the Lords in itself is a bad thing. And certainly that is my own personal view. I don't think the Lords is a terrible, terrible thing. I think having a pool of experts as a revising chamber is incredibly important, but it's only actually quite a small percentage that does seem to be kind of thoughtful, hardworking Lords. I mean, when you have people like Ross Kempsell and the junior advisor that Boris Johnson had going in. I mean, I know we make a joke. I mean, I spend quite a lot of time in the House of Lords. We make a joke that, you know, <laughs> that the Lords is a bit saga. That doesn't mean it should be Club 1830 at the same time. You know, it's <laughs> kind of... I had Sir Norman Fowler on, on my radio show a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, he, of course, is a great um, member of the House of Lords. But even he was saying, we have actually... The House of Lords has been brought into disrepute now. And it's actually becoming like a kind of a lightning conductor for a lot of people's anger about how broken politics is. And that was before Michelle Moan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Totally before Michelle. So I think one of the things that I think, and I don't expect anybody to be like, hey, big round of applause because, you know, I work in the media and that's how it works. You know, you, you want your kind of easy, and I say you, myself included, you know, it's the easy headline. It's how do you distill this into one story? But I think to give credit where credit is due to Keir Starmer and especially to Gordon Brown and the the sort of advisors that worked really closely with him, it's just so rare in this day and age in politics to see people really put in two years of proper thinking, stuff which is really, really important to the kind of structures of politics, which are quite boring. But if you could try and address some of those structures in politics it would make things like local government work a bit better. It would make people feel that they were getting better run services or, you know, a, a better, you know, local economy or better transport, which is something which is a huge issue. But I think my personal hunch, look, let's see what happens. I think the I think Keir Starmer is going to be quite boxed in if he wins the next general election by the economic situation. And where he can make himself to be very different and do something that no Labour leader has done and have, they've tried to do could be something constitutional on, on the Lord. So I think there's also a kind of political calculation there as well. 
I mean, I absolutely take your point there that, um, you know, the kind of deep thinking is something that we've been lacking for so long. And it's, it's you know, fantastic, exciting to see it happening again. And of course, there's a place for it. And actually, when you're looking at polling like you've got now, then that is the time that Labour should be putting in the kind of the deep thought. Because, uh, as you said, it might, I, I was saying it might not be the quick win. Yes, maybe not. But it doesn't need to be either. Mm. If Starmer's thinking about where his... Um, kind of easy cells are, this probably isn't it. Definitely doesn't mean it shouldn't be happening and that the thinking shouldn't be going on. Yeah. Naomi, just to wrap up, to get to get you back on your hobby horse of proportional representation, does this mean that if the thought on the energy is going to be going into a large, wide-ranging constitutional remake of, of, of Britain, but that doesn't include proportional representation, does this mean that you should be sort of kind of hoping for a hung parliament so that other parties can put pressure on the Labour Party to consider proportional representation. Well, I mean, look, <laughs> uh, you, <laughs> that's such a hard question to answer because you can't engineer the outcome of an election. You can't say, look, right, right, guys, we've got to be really careful with the tax mm. voting just to make sure that Labour don't do too well so that the Lib Dems <laughs> have the balance of power and can force Starmer to do PR. Um, that may well be where we end up. Uh, I mean, the polls at the moment certainly don't indicate anything other than uh, a significant majority for Labour. Um, and I think, you know, I would imagine that Keir Starmer personally doesn't intellectually hate the idea of of fair votes and and democratic equality it feels like exactly the sort of thing that would be in his wheelhouse so perhaps he would actually quite like to be able to say look labor guys uh wasn't me the pesky <laughs> made me do it um you know maybe that even he would not be disappointed with that uh yes technically the only obvious route to it at the moment will be uh, a hung parliament where, where one of the other opposition parties forces their hand on it. But you never know. And I would encourage listeners to keep the pressure up on their Labour PPCs and MPs um, and uh, the NEC and others, particularly if you're you're a Labour member, to say, come on, you know, just put it as a small print in the manifesto that you will look at electoral reform because it is currently uh, a, a pretty poor way to elect the House of Commons and every other major Western democracy has long since ditched it and it's only us and Belarus and Europe that still use this arcane process. And so my dream of being Lord Harrison of Woke Newington <laughs> dies a sad death. Next up, a question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. And this one actually relates to what we've been talking about uh, earlier. Uh, listeners, remember, you can put your questions to the panel when you back us on Patreon. Listener Darren Ferris says, On the Lord's thing, I absolutely agree there needs to be reform to remove the jobs for the boys and girls mechanism that rewards just blind loyalty. But it's actually a much wider issue. The whole system of Parliament needs reform how many Etonians have been Prime Minister or MPs in Parliament. It seems there are exclusive pathways into the institutions that govern. So how do we change all that to ensure that we get MPs from a wider, more representative selection of people? I think this can be paraphrased as, why don't good people want to be MPs? <laughs> Hannah? First thing you need to do is pay them more, I'm afraid. It's not very palatable mm. because uh, you know, describing um, you know, relatively large salaries, probably twice or three times the average as not enough feels uncomfortable. But the truth is, if you do that job properly, it's your entire life. And it should be. It's a privilege. It's It should be all-consuming. It should be something that people go into entirely um, for uh, non-self-motivated purposes, entirely mm. just to represent their communities. And to give it the energy it deserves, we need to pay them more. And... Um, there just needs to be a really honest conversation about that. I so so the end of the question was how do we ensure we get MPs from a wider, more representative selection of people? And I don't think it's pay that is the barrier for the average person getting involved in politics. Um when we look at you know the, the lack of diversity of prime ministers, 30 of them were educated at Oxford, 13 at Christchurch College, Oxford, 14 at Cambridge, six from Trinity College, 20 prime ministers schooled at Eton, of whom nine were Eton and Christchurch, Oxford. Um, so by God, we do need to do far more on diversity and inclusion in our politics. And, you know, I'm not going to 
talk about PR again, but we do need to end safe seats. Uh, we do need to clean up politics. It feels like a grubby profession that you wouldn't necessarily want your child to go into. Um, I think the expenses scandal uh, was the, the the straw that broke the camel's back on that front. And we need better citizenship classes in schools. Um, we we need to be making sure that every school gets to run mock elections and, and colleges too. But I think for our listeners, you just need to be setting an example to, to younger people that democracy is something you do, not something that is done to you. And that means, you know, joining your parent-teacher association. It means standing for local election. Or if that feels like too big a thing to do, get elected to your allotment committee or, you know, local residents association, whatever it is, to just normalise involvement and active citizenship rather than us sitting back being sort of passive recipients of this this political class that do things to us. Um, and I think the more of us that can do that, then the more children from, you know, backgrounds that aren't those of Eton and Oxford and Cambridge educated people will feel like it is something that is for them to participate in because it is just a much more normal rhythm of, of being an active citizen of the UK. Aisha, how do you go about it? Would you press gang people in the middle of the night, drag them out of pubs and say you're an MP now? <laughs> How do you think the Labour Party gets people to <laughs> Um So I've got a bit of a controversial thought on this. I think we have quite a cliched discussion about this. The kind of trope is, oh, everybody's really posh and really rich. That's not true. There are some very posh, very rich people in politics. And they do, t- as Naomi said, they do tend to get on very well. But if, for example, you look at the... 2019 intake there was this huge influx of people who work for completely different diverse backgrounds in the conservative party they were not uh, career politicians they had not been special advisors many of them only put in their applications to be an mp a couple of weeks before the um, deadline for the general election campaign and i'm afraid i don't think that intake has enriched parliament in any we at all. In fact, I think many of that intake have actually made politics like a, a, a worse place. They're people who we would all rant against uh, on a regular basis. I think there is something in the middle where you you can't just be any old person off the street and come into politics. I know that's a really unpopular thing to say, but I think it's true. And I think actually it's been proved to be true. I think being a politician is incredibly difficult. It is a job 24-7. You have no privacy. You have no time with your family. Your relationship will probably suffer. Your relationship with your children will suffer. Your mental health will suffer. You have to be on top of absolutely everything. If you have a bad day at work, your entire reputation could be trash. You'll be a meme um, on social media. The clip of you not knowing the answer to something will you know, go viral There are very few jobs where you are under such pressure and you're under such scrutiny. And on top of that, you get regular death threats, rape threats, and you could be killed during your job. So when you put it like that, it's not the most appealing thing in the world. And we need people to go in eyes wide open. I think there is a group of people that we are not tapping into who are not just people who are like, hey, I think I'll just have a go at politics. I kind of rant at the telly a bit. They are people who have done things of note. They are people that could handle the pressure. They are people who could handle the scrutiny. And in terms of the money that sort of Hannah tapped into, MPs do get a good salary. But if I'm really, really honest with you, most of the MPs I I know, and this this includes Labour MPs, not all of them, but quite a lot of them who do quite well, have got really rich partners. Yeah, absolutely. They form quite a rich family. Either rich background parent, you know, inherited wealth or... Yeah, incredibly successful partners, and it's because that if that if you're willing to give up your life in that way, you need some other stability. I think that was yeah. kind of my my point on you. You do need to be rewarded for that. I think it's fair to be rewarded for that, and we should be comfortable with paying people what they deserve for being selfless in that way. Next up, crises. How many crises? You'll be hard-pressed to find a sector that isn't going on strike in the month of December. Postal workers, security staff at train stations, nurses, even staff at the homeless charity shelter are coming out. This week, the Transport Union, the RMT, announced even more strike action over the festive period, including on Christmas Eve. From the government and its allied newspapers, we are getting those Thatcher-era greatest hits. Union barons are holding the country to ransom. 
and Union Grinches Want to Ruin Christmas, plus a brand new one from Nadim Zahawi, Union fifth columnists are playing into Putin's hands. But are public sympathies actually with the strikers? Will the winter of discontent play out differently this time? Um, Aisha, I want to talk about the rail unions first. The government is banking on the public turning hard against them for going on strike so close to Christmas. How do you think the balance of sympathy is going? Well, I mean, think about this a lot because um, I have been affected by this. I've decided that I'm not going to go home for Christmas this year because I just can't bear the travel mm. chaos. I always travel by That's train up to Glasgow. Come round ours for a mulled wine. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's just going to be horrendous. You know, I don't want to get stuck at Preston forever. You know, it's just, it's all of those kind of things. But so, and yesterday I had this big lunch with lots of very well-paid businessmen and they were like, this is horrendous. Who do you blame? Do you blame Mick Lynch? He's a monster. And actually I was like, I don't blame Mick Lynch because if Mick Lynch is responsible for everything going wrong in this country, then he is our new overlord. Mick Lynch is not responsible for the nurses, for the you know airport staff, even like scientists are going on strike. I think that there's two things which I think have, are different with this set of strikes. One is the inflation crisis. And I think most people think people deserve a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. And that's not happening at the moment because of inflation. And secondly, the strikes are just shining a light on how broken Britain is and how absolutely strained at the seams everything is right now. All the things we took for granted, like even a few years ago, like catching a train or booking a doctor's appointment or, you know, renewing your driving license. You know, it's just a complete gamble as to whether that's going to happen because everything's been hollowed out. And a really interesting test for me is this morning I did... um, uh, the Jeremy Vine show on on Channel 5 and they did a phone in. It was me and uh, Christopher Hope from The Telegraph and he was like, no, 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 the public are all against the strikers, Aisha. You're a lefty, you're in a minority. You know, everyone else is going to blame Mick Lynch even on your behalf. And every single caller, and I was really surprised at this, every single caller was like, you know what, I actually support the strikers. I support the nurses. I support people that are having a really, really hard time. And actually everybody was saying the government needs to sort this out. It is quite ironic that among the the, uh, the groups going on strike are Border Force, who are now going on strike. So, like, how how are we going to like feed the express front pages about throwing out illegal immigrants? Now we can't afford to run Border Force. Woke it's border be... Force stuff. Well, and now, yeah, woke lefty Border Force. Um, Aisha, uh, back in the seventies, the government had a much stronger ideological link with the trade union movement. And in fact, in the original winter of discontent, which I am ancient enough to remember, Tony Benn thought it happened because there weren't enough socialist policies. Does the does the old formulation of Labour's union puppet masters that you still see on the front of the Telegraph and the Mail does that still work for the Tories as an attack line? Do you think? So I think they think it does, and I think some of their polling suggests that that it does. So some of the kind of polling Tory polling I've seen says that basically linking Labour to Jeremy Corbyn and to the sort of trade, old school trade union movement does still frighten a lot of traditional Tory voters who Labour needs to convince to win. So that's why they're they're going hard on, on that narrative. But I think what has kind of changed is the fact that because Keir Starmer has absolutely gone to war with Jeremy Corbyn and in fact has spent most of his time as, as a leader defining himself against Jeremy Corbyn. He's had this huge bust up with Corbyn. It's going to come to a head soon when Corbyn, you know, is Corbyn going to stand as an independent and run against the Labour Party in Islington? And in terms of the unions, I think Labour's got to be quite careful here because Labour has got to kind of slightly sit on the fence here. It's really hard to be a government in waiting and then have people on the picket lines. But one of the things I think Labour has got to be really, really careful about doing is not disavowing their heritage, which is, you know, hewn from the Labour movement. I mean, Keir Starmer is named after Keir Hardy. The Labour Party was Mm, set up to represent the working man and and woman uh, subsequently. So I think, but also I think that there is a bit of a new breed of trade union leader. Yes, a lot of focus is on Mick Lynch, but there are brilliant new women. Sharon Graham of Unite, Christina McEnany, who is the leader of the biggest union in Britain, Unison. But I think that there is a new generation of of union leader who who will be tough and stand up to Labour and, and fight on behalf of their workers and their members. But they're not the bogeymen of the sort of, they're not Len McCluskey, they're not Bob Crew. And as for as much as everyone slags off Mick Lynch, he's been a PR kind of yeah. 
but he's been brilliant for the trade union movement. Mm. People can't get enough of Mick Lynch. And for everybody who hates him, there's another sort of two or three people going, actually, yeah. he's kind of speaking sense and he's actually articulate and he does know what he's talking about. And so I think there's a lot of changes happening in the trade union movement. Just don't ask Mick Lynch about Brexit. Um, Hannah, the NHS strike is very is quite different from, from the RNC. I mean, they're very different to paint, uh, you know, nurses as, you know, greedy and lazy and lefties and all the kind of thing that the male loves, loves to do. It was an ITN poll found that 63% of people supported striking NHS workers, 54% backed striking posties, and 49% backed the RMT strikers, which isn't an absolute majority, but it was still more than 41% who opposed them. I mean, this is, is this an evidence of some kind of sea change, do you think, in the public? It does feel like, I mean, some of the, the language we heard about, you know, linking the strikes to Putin, it feels like panic because they know, the Tories know that the, the kind of mood is, is um, definitely moving towards sympathy for those choosing to strike. Um, you know, look, looking at support for the NHS, this isn't a new thing either. If you think back to um, the junior doctor strike in uh, 2015, I think 16 that was, they lost that. The, the government did end up having to make concessions. It was much less said when the new junior doctor contract was signed in 2020, but the government had to make a lot of concessions there and because there was such significant, significant support for NHS staff. So I think the same thing is happening now with nurses. Um and seeking to oppose it and start bringing in, you know, geopolitics really doesn't work for the Tories. And you can tell they're worried because of the amount of misinformation that's going on. And it's almost like a, se a second culture war in the press now. Mm. Uh, I'm from a railway family. Um, my dad's side of the family. Everybody worked or works or worked in the railways. So I, I know that some of the stats and the information about the Christmas strikes is just nonsense. So there is never any train service on Christmas yeah. Day. And also the train service stops usually on Christmas Eve around 5pm, which is why most people have a half day at work on Christmas Eve. So the trains are actually running until 6pm this year. So they're extended it slightly. And um, yes, Boxing Day, there is usually a skeleton service, but it's only a skeleton service. So the number of trains that are being lost is minute. The Tories are really abusing the kind of... Um, emotion of it being Christmas time to make it sound like this is a bigger action than it is. So there's there's, there's anxiety there. Naomi, um, we've talked about Keir Starmer's policy of not backing strikes um, because it's not a good look for a, a government in, in waiting. He has opposed new laws on limiting industrial action. But is there any way for Labour to have a, a kind of like a good winter in the way the Conservatives capitalised on the original winter of discontent in 1978? Yeah, I mean, look, first off, I, I, I'm sure that some is pretty comfortable sitting back watching the chaos unfold and, and putting that blame firmly with the government for, for you know, not only not adjusting pay in line or even close to the inflation that they have caused, but having presided over a decade of, of lost growth and stagnant wages. And I think the support that people have for these strikes are because they recognise them. They recognise and have sympathy with how many of the strikers are feeling because everyone is seeing bills go up. A huge number of people have not had any significant pay increase for many, many years. And an equal, uh, <laughs> an equally large number hate the government. Um and so, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm sure that that he'll be happy to 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 make those points, and I think that he must. And I think the other point worth making, and they have made, but the current inflation rate we're seeing at the moment hasn't been driven by a wage price spiral. This is, um, you know, other factors, notably, of course, energy. So it it just it doesn't make an economic sense either to be, you know, denying hard-working people that were key workers throughout the pandemic that kept this country uh, together over a very, very difficult period of time shouldn't have um, pay adjusted so that you don't have nurses, for God's sake, using food banks. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure Labour will be able to um, uh, lay the vast majority of the pain people are feeling at the government's feet. So the government's core position is that it has, quote, run out of money and that any awarding close to inflation pay rises would, would produce that, you know, wage price spiral you've just talked about. But, you know, they could make these awards and either either handle the inflation through interest rates or through taxation. Yep. They're kind of in their own trap, you know, the, the, the trap of their own kind of budgetary terms. Are we essentially coming to the end of that sort of Thatcherite household budget model for national finances? No, that you've I'd, got love, to... I'd love to believe it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if they, if they can't make it work. Yeah, well, no, they can't. And they, they're, they're tying themselves in knots over it and... 
this is a deeply divided party um, and you've got very strong differences of opinion within the Conservative MPs about, you know, tax and spend at the moment and many, many, many other issues, which is why Sunak is either having to quietly drop bills or water down significant parts of them, whether it's on house building targets or uh, issues around Bill of Rights and Northern Ireland Protocol Bill and all of that. So, you know, voters don't vote for divided parties. And my God, he's got one on his hands. Well, we're on a work to rule here at God What Now. So before we go... Let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Aisha, what's your story that uh, requires more attention at the moment? Well, it's actually um, a film, uh, but it bleeds into a much bigger issue. It's five years since the Me Too movement exploded and a film has just come out called She Said, which is the story of how two journalists at the New York Times um, exposed and brought down Harvey Weinstein. And... It's a brilliant, brilliant film. It's a kind of reminder of just how horrible the situation was, how brave all the women were who spoke out from the actresses like Ashley Judd. And there are two women who worked for Harvey Weinstein, um, Rowena Chu and Zelda Perkins. Now, Harvey Weinstein sexually assaulted one of them and they confronted him about it. And these women paid a really heavy price for doing that. And the the film kind of charts how them coming forward was a really, really huge turning point in, in landing the investigation and getting it to print. And the reason I say it's under the radar, it's a brilliant film, and yet nobody is watching it and no one's talking about it. And um, I actually wrote a column on it last week, and I'll be honest with you, it didn't really do that well. And it feels that five years on from the big hashtag and everybody like being, yeah, me too, nobody cares anymore. And it does feel for many feminists like things are sort of going backwards when you look at, at everything across the piece. So that is my little plea to people. Please go and see this film called She Said. It's a really powerful film about not just how awful men behave, but how structures keep a culture of silence and a culture of secrecy. Hannah, how about yours? This is on a bit of a different track and it's not completely buried, but I think it deserved more attention than it got. Um, It's a story from New Zealand about a six-month-old baby called Baby W who was born with a congenital heart defect and needed emergency surgery to save their life. Um, the child's parents were anti-vaxxers and refused to consent to the surgery unless they had a guarantee that any blood used in a transfusion during the operation, which would obviously be a a significant operation, open-heart surgery, uh, did not contain... What was not vaccinated blood did not contain any vaccination. Uh, of course, the first of all, the hospital couldn't guarantee that. Second of all, um, the state in New Zealand felt that agreeing to that on an individual basis just to save the life of this child would set a terrible precedent. There was a legal case uh, that the state basically took guardianship of that child for the um, for the period during which the surgery and recovery took place. So um, the health authorities now have legal guardianship of baby W um, so that that surgery can take place um, and the recovery period so that uh, that child survives, gets the life-saving surgery they need, but there's no pandering to the kind of anti-vax movement in New Zealand. And thats it's such a significant step to remove guardianship from the parents of, uh, of a child. But the, acting legally on the basis of rationality, mm. I think, is really, really important. And hopefully that's kind of a step in one nation that sets a precedent across the world uh, for how we should tackle misinformation and disinformation around vaccination. Acting rationally, could it ever catch on? Uh, Naomi, what's your under the radar? Uh, oh, well, it's a good old Brexit story. Uh, <laughs> Brexit story. It's a story that was in Private Eye uh, this week, uh, which is former minister and Brexiteer says that the trade deal Crawford Faulkner negotiated with Australia 
quotes is not very good. Um, and we've seen more and more of this. We had George Eustace a couple of weeks ago, former DEFRA minister, also admitting that the trade deal UK had signed with Australia was uh, really not <laughs> the best interests of British farmers, which British farmers um, had been telling the government, of course, all along. But Private Eye uh, has also been able to uh, throw light onto the fact that on top of getting a £265,000 civil service salary, um, Crawford Faulkner has also got a 20k bonus on top of that. The Brexit successes keep piling up if you're a certain kind of person. And that's the end of the podcast. Listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, Thank you, Naomi. Thank you very much. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you very much. And thank you, Hannah. Thank you. Now, stay tuned for the extra bit, which is exclusively for backers on Patreon, but uh, everybody else gets a bit of a taster too. After our theme song, Corner Shop with Demon is a Monster, and the traditional thank you to some of our still enormous backlog of generous supporters. Hello from me and many thanks to Ryan Ogden, Kat Duchas, I, Terry Land, Patricia Haycock and Sue de Havilland. Hello from me to Leslie Weston, David Rochester, David Smith, Sarah Griffiths, Hugh Lewis and Andrew Bell. And a big Christmas shout out from me to Rosie Hill, Dominic Mitchell, Mirko Kaman, Noel McAvoy, Susan Stainer and Nick Miles. And hello from me to James Torrance, Deborah Bowyer, Clive Kane, Alistair Scott, Nicholas Jackson and Simon Dowd. We will see you next time. Oh God, what now? Was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Hannah Fern, Naomi Smith and Aisha Hazarika. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. Audio production by Robin Lieburn. With additional production from me, Alex Reese, Jack Gerbertson, and Kasia Tomasiewicz. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Hello, goblins. Welcome to the extra bit, our hidden underground lair for Patreon backers. This week, the Oxford University Press have picked their word of the year. In the past, it's gone... In the past, they've gone with Vax, post-truth, and the cry-laugh emoji. In 2022, the word is goblin mode. It's not a new way of playing Dungeons & Dragons. It is described as a type of behaviour which is unapologetically self-indulgent and lazy, typically in a way that rejects social norms or expectations. Sounds like my life. Hannah, Hmm. is that a typical Sunday round your way? (laughs) I feel like I've been living in goblin mode since I had my first (laughs) child. I don't think I've looked in the mirror since then. But I think... um, I don't know. There's something about it that I quite like for women. There seems to be this kind of do women are talking about it a lot yeah. on social media? Young women, they're, they're, they're describing themselves as living in goblin mode, and what they really mean is. And that was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like to hear the whole thing, then you can back us on Patreon. You'll also get the full podcast without ads, and you get loads of other stuff as well. Sign up to back us for as little as three pound a month, and it will all be coming your way. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>